Hello and welcome to the Weekly Bunker Roundtable. I'm Justin Quirk. On this week's edition, as Britain braces for Prime Minister Liz Truss, who are the dissenting voices on the backbenches ready to cause trouble for Number 10's latest occupant? Plus, after startling revelations by former BBC host Emily Maitlis last week, we take a look at what the Johnson years have done to Britain's media. And, as schools come back from the summer holidays, what do our panellists remember about their first day in education? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Thanks for joining us here on The Bunker. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. From as little as £2 a month, you too can join our angry mob and get the shows early and ad-free, plus great merchandise. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Now, let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to journalist and Chancellor of the University of Kent, Gavin Esler. Hello. Yes, lovely day for it. Gavin, Nadim Zahawi has suggested people earning up to £45,000 could need help to pay bills, and he also broke ranks slightly with the government this week as he suggested people should be urged to limit their energy usage. Does this feel like a tipping point in the government actually tentatively starting to sort of do something? Well, I think the difference between recognising a problem and recognising a solution has managed to elude this government for its entire, actually, for at least a decade, it seems to me. And Mr. Zahawi, you know, I I can see why he's concerned. But I mean, he is an expert on heating in, in houses. You will recall that in 2013, he admitted he was mortified to discover he had received £5,822.27p in expenses to heat his second home, including his stables. Now, as it happens, the £45,000 that he says anybody earning less is going to be in trouble, obviously, it's going to be lots of people and possibly people earning more than that. The mean average salary in this country is about £38,600 for those per annum for those who are in full-time work. Two-thirds of food service hospitality earners earn much less than that. So, you know, I'm glad he's he, he sort of has woken up a bit and smelled the coffee. But what, what is his solution? It seems to be that under, under his new leader, it will be tax cuts, which are not of a, much of a solution if you don't pay much tax anyway. Also back on the show, we have former diplomat and host of the Doomsday Watch podcast, Arthur Snell. Hi. Arthur, uh, President Macron has insisted that the UK and France are close friends still, regardless of whether certain politicians think so or not. Uh, Truss's comments are reliably easy to mock. But is there a diplomatic cost to this kind of talk? Uh, There definitely is. And particularly so because, of course, President Macron is the head of state. And whilst having an elected president as head of state is not quite the same as having a queen, you just know that if a French uh, would-be leader of government made comments about our queen, uh, most of this country and certainly most of the Tory party would lose their shit. So, um, uh, you know, any country has the right to view their head of state as a certain personification of the kind of dignity of their country. And it was incredibly undignified of trust to go off like that. I think, though, we have reached the stage in the UK's sort of relationship with its sort of allies and, and peers which is a bit like your friend who's the alcoholic. Um, and there are just moments when they do something fucking stupid and, and we all just sort of say, well, you've got to give them space and they're going through a phase. And, and unfortunately, the UK is that person at the moment. 
Next stop, the Drawing Out Clinic. Indeed. Completing the panel, we're delighted to welcome back author, screenwriter, celebrity MasterChef champion and Lego enthusiast, have I missed anything out, Emma Kennedy. Uh, good to have you back, Emma. I, I'm really good at conkers. I don't want that to... <laughs> I, I really don't want to let that start. Coming up to the season as well. You know, so, you know I, I'm not going to proceed in this podcast unless it is, it is noted uh, that I'm flipping good at conkers and then we can move on. We can lose that in the edits. We'll, we'll fix that for the show. Emma, uh, Liz Truss pulled out of an interview with Nick Robinson due to be aired on Tuesday evening. Yes. Uh, is this remotely a surprise? And how has the BBC got itself into this position again? Uh, no, it's it's not a surprise. I think Boris Johnson, I think we'll, we'll be talking more about this later, but I, I think the tone is now set amongst the Conservative Party that they are working out that that the way to avoid scrutiny, and this is a government that will do anything in its power to avoid scrutiny, is to just not turn up to uh, uh, for interviews. Boris Johnson did it and now Liz Truss is doing it. But, you know, for somebody who has been very vocal in saying that she's going to stand up to Putin, it's quite extraordinary that she's terrified of Nick Robinson. Well, I mean, in, in some ways, a more more intimidating figure, one could argue. Um, there was, a, I saw a friend of the show, Marie Leconte, uh, suggested on Twitter earlier that um, one solution to this would be that rather than empty chairing the guest, the allotted host should just have that 30 minute slot to repeat any and all rumours they've ever heard about the politician free from any risk of libel. Oh, that I mean, that would be amazing. I mean, I'm all for that. Yes, please. There's less than one week to go now until the new Prime Minister is chosen, with one-time anti-monarchist, Twyford Down Road protester and Lib Dem Remainer, Liz Truss, all but nailed on to enter number 10 Downing Street. The contest has been an extremely bloody one, with party splits clearer than ever before and Tory MPs disavowing their own record in government. So, how does the party come together after such a bruising period, or are we set to see the launch of the TRG, the Trust Research Group? Gavin, Trust is set to be the third PM chosen by Tory members, but the first to win through members overturning the MP's choice from the earlier rounds. With splits in the party clear for all to see, how do you think the coming months will pan out for her, especially as the cost of living crisis worsens? Badly, I think. Um, I can elaborate. I, I mean, what, was, <laughs> Please do. what has Liz, Liz Truss ever done to make your life better? As Foreign Secretary, she's been stupid about France. As Minister for Women and Equalities, I mean, we all remember uh, about Sarah Everard and the protest. Did, did she say a peep on that that was of any interest? As Environment Secretary, we have now got sewage pretty much everywhere. She was Secretary of State for Justice. The courts are in a shambles. They are underinvested. We've got barristers on strike. Oh, yeah, she was in the Department of International Trade and she signed basically a rollover deal with Japan, which she, she said would make us have cheaper soy sauce. She called it soya sauce and it's actually mostly made in Holland. I mean, I can't think of anything that she has done that's improved my, my, my life. And the other thing is, you, which you, you absolutely touched on, why should any of us accept this ludicrous system invented by the Conservative Party, and actually Labour's one isn't much better, um, in the middle of a parliament to let 160,000 people that we didn't vote for choose the person that we didn't vote for as Prime Minister either. I mean, I, the, the great um, Edmund Burke, the sort of father of conservatism, said our ministers and representatives owe us their judgment and they betray us instead of serve us if they sacrifice their judgment to public opinion. Now, 
you know, you can argue about that if you're talking about public opinion of the entire country. But if you're talking about 160,000 people that nobody elected, uh, they just chose to join a political party. Uh, it, the, the, the entire the fact that we take this system because we have to seriously shows just how badly things are being run in Britain right now, it seems to me. I mean, most new PMs, when they come into office, do have a honeymoon period where their approval and ratings, if not shooting up, at least bounce up somewhat. Given the gravity of the winter crisis, do you think Truss will be allowed one of those or is she going to buck that tradition? I suppose it depends upon what she does rather than what she says. I mean, is she really going to cut taxes? Is she really going to do that? Is that is that the way the way forward? Uh, and, and we know that essentially interest rates are being raised to prevent a run on the pound, which is the thing that the government really scares them more than anything anything else. They're not they're not being done to choke off uh, inflation. They've been done to to keep the pound buoyant. So she has actually got to do something. And the reason I, I recited her. I think really dreary, not quite Chris Grayling standard track record, but pretty poor in serially failing to do anything that I've noticed as being positive suggests she's not going to get a grip. And unfortunately, that's bad for the country. It's probably good for the Labour Party, but that's, that's another story. I don't think we should forget her great speech about cheese, though. That, <laughs> that, that will never be forgotten. I, 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 my, my job as a student... Uh, was to shovel cheese in a cheese factory in County Antrim, Northern Ireland. I, I made a really good, uh, you know, Red Leicester was made in County Antrim, Cheddar was made in County Antrim, and one or two other things. And I have to say her, her speech on cheese was, you're right, the pinnacle of her achievement. But, but don't you think, I mean, the thing about the Conservatives if, is I will always give them credit for the fact that they have this incredible capacity to pull together when there is an election coming. But something smells a bit different this time. And I think uh, that there's a sense amongst them that they know they're done for. So it, it sort of feels like they're getting ready for every man for themselves. And I think certainly some of the, the long-term big hitters, um, you know, they, they, what are they going to do? Are they going to want to risk having their own Portillo moment? Or are they going to jump now and, you know, forever be unbeaten at the ballot box. And I, and I can tell you now that the, the rumour mill, you may have seen the, the Guardian have broke a story this afternoon, but the rumour mill here in Surrey Heath is literally going, you know, like the clappers, that, that Michael Gove is on the cusp of, of chucking it all in. And, and we've been discussing this at length here because obviously we don't know whether it's true or, or not. But if you think a bit about it from his point of view, so the rumour is that he's going to be offered the, or he has already been offered editor of the Times. We don't know whether that's true or not, but that, that is the rumour. And if you think, okay, he's not going to be in government because Liz Truss isn't going to make him a minister, is he really going to want to sit on the back benches? And is he really going to want to then further sit on the back benches in opposition for what may be 10 years plus? No, he's not. Here is a great big lovely plum job if this is what he's being offered. And for him, that's a perfect fit and that's a perfect get out. So I can see easily envisage that a lot of people of that ilk of uh, you know the, the old gnarled beasts of uh, the conservative party this is a golden opportunity for them to jump ship and get out while they can 
Do you think that's more likely than, say, the likes of, you know, Raab, Hancock, Jeremy Hunt um, forming a sort of caucus within the party and causing trouble for her from the back benches? That lot might. Um, but again, it's like, you know, they're, they're not stupid. They'll, they'll be looking at the, the numbers on the papers. And certainly Rob, I think Rob is absolutely a shoo-in to lose his seat at the next election. I don't think there's any way he's going to hold Isha. And they will know this. And so I suppose it, it's, again, we come back to that, do they do they want to have that moment of public humiliation the way M- Michael Mortilla did and, and a lot of people did in 97? And I suspect a lot of them won't. Arthur, apart from sort of rebellion on votes, if you do get this sort of grouping on the backbenches of essentially disloyal MPs, what other methods do they have at their disposal to make Truss's life difficult? Well, I think we can look to the... Uh the Theresa May years in particular for as a sort of the guidebook on this. And and it's partly endless speculation. And, you know, the, the amazing thing about the Conservative Party is as soon as they elect uh, a new leader, um, then the vacancy appears for the would-be new leader. It's a bit like um, James Goldsmith's mistress who, you know, when, when he got married, there was a vacancy for her. Um, and so I think uh, there'll be this constant speculation about whether or not Truss is a sort of caretaker uh, maybe for for the return of Boris Johnson or just for some other character. There'll be conf- constant speculation, of course, if they do get closer to an election, they look likely to lose about who the next generation are going to be because she certainly wouldn't survive as leader after losing an election. So I think uh, the, the Tory, both at the backbenchers, but also the sort of the media machine will be endlessly ruminating publicly about life without her as Prime Minister, which will undermine her from the first day. I mean, given those splits within the party and, as we've discussed, the cost of living crisis, which you know, I don't think is going to get better in the next six to 12 months, how likely do you think it is that Trust might gamble on an early election? Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen this and it, it's, I don't think you could rule it out because um, she's clearly somebody who uh, is willing to completely contradict all the things she's already said if she sees a short-term advantage. And of course, there will be a bounce in the polls. And I think most serious people look and say, yeah, but the, 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 the seriousness of this economic situation is such that any bounce is not going to get you over the line. But ultimately, it, it's a kind of game theory question, isn't it? If you have a small chance of winning something now, or even smaller chance of winning something two years from now, what do you do? Um, and and she, she might decide to go early. Gavin, um, you mentioned before that this situation is, you know, parlous for the country, but perhaps better for the Labour Party. Um, how do Labour actually make use of this ammunition that the Tories have given them? Yeah, that's a, that is a very good question. Uh, I mean, there's some things that they should not do. Obviously, one is stop fighting among themselves, stop going on about the the lost cause of Corbyn and and all that. That it just doesn't play with voters. It may still work within the party at times, I suppose. Uh, I think they could be bold. I think they could be also very simple. I think they could just say, are you better off than you were five years ago? Are you even better off than you were 12 years ago when, you know, we had, um, we were still suffering from uh, what happened in 2008 and Gordon Brown actually didn't do all that badly. So they have got, they have got a lot of opportunities. And I don't think that, you know, I've, I find the the sort of criticism of Keir Starmer is boring. I'm uh, rather, rather, pointless really i mean i'm sure clement attlee wasn't you know the funniest 
music hall comedian, but he was a very, very fine prime minister in terms of getting things done and changing the shape of the country and the new Jerusalem. So we could, you know, there are so many cards that Labour could play provided that they they can kind of keep together. I I accept, however, they've got some problems too, particularly about strikes. But I think most of us, if you have a reasonably open mind about this, you understand why people are going on strike. If you've talked to any of the people going on strike, I talk to train workers all the time because I spend a lot of time on the trains. They don't want to lose money. They're very worried about how they're going to pay their electricity bills. They don't want to lose a day's pay or several days' pay but they feel that they're backed into a corner. And I, 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 frankly, I have a great deal of sympathy for them. I also understand Keir Starmer's difficulty in coming out too openly in favour of things that cause disruption. But he could be a bit bolder, it seems to me. Gavin, you mentioned, I mean, that common perception has always been that Labour are the party of pointless factionalism and infighting, while the Conservatives are this ruthless election-winning machine who always fall into line at the key time. Do those stereotypes still hold true, do you think? I, I don't think they do. They don't, certainly don't seem to in this leadership race. And also, what is their big idea? You know, uh, Mrs. Thatcher, you could love her or you could loathe her, but you uh, people tended to respect her and she had a big idea. She had a big idea for, for doing something about the country, which was different from the mess of the 1970s when we changed governments quite frequently. The Conservatives don't seem to have a clue. I mean, uh, they don't have a, a one clue. They have lots of clues and they seem to be going in different directions. So their own their secret weapon has been loyalty, as it has been in the Republican Party in the United States. And we will see, I suspect, before we have a British general election, we'll see in the, the midterms in November how that goes for the, the Trumpists and the, the non-Trumpists, because their loyalty may be misplaced if they if they think uh, Trump is still quite the vote winner he was. We'll see. Um, here... The Tories obviously are in quite a mess, uh, and it will also be very interesting to see what Sunak does. If he loses, does he go to the back benches and go quietly? Does he go off to make a few more bazillions doing what he probably does very well? Uh, They have also lost a lot of talent, the Dominic Greaves and and the Anna Soubries and others who have already gone because they were purged, effectively purged, by Boris Johnson or the the, the Brexiteers. So they are truly, truly divided, and they haven't solved problems for the country. They have tended to create them, and Brexit being one of them. With Boris Johnson leaving number 10 and Michael Gove heading to the back benches, or is he, our government of journalists and PR professionals appears to be on its last legs. The impact this has had on the government is all too obvious, but what have the last three years done to our media? And with Liz Truss continuing to push narratives of BBC bias, are things set to get even worse? Emma, the last few years have seen rabid Johnson support from papers like Daily Mail and The Telegraph. Can you see that continuing when the new PM comes in? Yes. Uh, I, I, I think the problem that we've got is that, is that Truss is sort of continuation Johnson. And what they have mastered, and this is this goes right back to the when he was heading up Vote Leave, is that he's understood that mastering the art of saying any old rubbish, uh, and then it will be headlined before it it's fact checked. So they can promise the moon on a stick, uh, uh, but they don't have to deliver on anything. And I, I I think this is this is something that they have been allowed to do. I, I don't know whether it's the 24-hour news cycle or, or the fact that they have, have properly managed to avoid across-the-board 
scrutiny and anyone that has scrutinized them properly you know channel 4 and bbc they've gone after i think it's now sort of just set in the mix that truss uh, can say or do whatever she likes and she knows that that she doesn't actually really have to deliver on anything and there's nobody sort of going well hang on a minute that's not what you've said you promised this you promised that and nothing is because they just move it on quickly 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 and that's sort of the world that that, that we live in but I mean my, my big bugbear with where we're at with our media is that we've got billionaires who don't live here who control a large chunk of our, our print media. And, and I was very pleased to see that, that that print media doesn't quite have the same oomph as it used to. But, you know, it is still a significant player in choosing who is going to win the next election. And I think that's really worrying to our democracy that we have uh, non-DOM owners of papers who basically are deciding for us. I mean, it's, you mentioned there that decline in readership and power there for the papers. I mean, it, it, that's a fascinating story in itself. And, you know, newspaper readership has more than halved since 2010. The Mail has gone from 2.1 million readers in 2010 to 900k in 2022. The Sun has declined similarly. Um, they do still have this apparent power within the political system, but are we overestimating their reach with the public? Let's take a recent example. Let, let, let's take the Daily Mail's absolutely rabid determination to get Keir Starmer um, uh, a fixed penalty notice on Beergate. I think they ran nine front pages in a row. And there was that there was definitely that impetus, you know, that they were trying to put the, the pressure on Durham police. But then you started seeing the Vox Pox uh, coming out and it was working. Because people were saying, oh, they're all the same. You know, Keir Starmer had a beer. He broke the rules. And he didn't break the rules. But because those images were constantly being pumped out, it just beds in. It's that old that old uh, saying, you know, if you say a lie often enough, people will start believing it. And that's what they do. I, th- I, th- I think it's really important for the, for the current um, conservative government and party to make the electorate think that all politicians are as bad as them. There, there's no doubt that that's going on. Gavin, in a lecture at the Edinburgh TV Festival last week, former BBC Newsnight presenter Emily Maitlis described the challenges the broadcaster faced during Johnson's time in office. Um, as someone who's been on that side of the camera, what did you make of her address? Yeah, and I, I'm a friend, I've been a friend of Emily's for about well, more years than most most of us care to remember. And I am strongly in favour of the BBC as an institution, although it's far from perfect. Um, so it was very interesting to hear it. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those who has been banging on for years in a very similar way to you just heard from Emma, uh, Emma there. We shouldn't have people who are not resident for tax purposes in our country running the media, which very often still sets the political agenda. I think that's really, really strange thing that we've allowed allowed to happen and the reason why Rupert Murdoch is an American I suspect is uh, obviously he loves the country but uh, you can't own a lot sizable sections of the American media if you're not an American so he ceased being an Australian but we we tolerate that the BBC is still the most trusted news brand in Britain although trust has collapsed in a lot of the media and it's fallen the BBC and just behind it is Channel 4. So it's not surprising, A, that they're more trusted than other uh, sections of the media and B, that the government would go after them. I think Emily's 
main point was absolutely right, which is this question about balance. I have I've been banging on for years, including within the BBC, that you can't balance people who have expertise with some rent-a-gob from a think tank. You can't balance uh, people who tell the truth with people who lie. And if that includes the president, former president of the United States quite a lot, then that's, <laughs> I'm afraid, that's the way the cookie crumbles. So uh, the, the re-evaluation of what we mean by balance, it seems to me, is something which the BBC and ITN, Channel 4, and so on, have to take seriously. And I know journalists within it do take it seriously, but it's not helped. And the one other thing that Emily said was Sir Robbie Gibb, who I also know is uh, on the BBC board and is helping define uh, editorial standards. Now, I think it's very important to have conservatives on the BBC board, but he is not a conservative who seems to me, at least, he may disagree with this, to be really supportive of public service broadcasting in the way that Rory Stewart, I think, would be, or Chris Patton would be, or Anna Subri would be. There are plenty of Tories who, or in the case of Anna Subri, an ex-Tory, who, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, they should be represented somewhere at the highest levels of the BBC. I have no problem with that. It is whether they are convinced that public service broadcasting and trying to get at the truth is more important than balance. I mean, there's obviously been something of a revolving door between Fleet Street and our most recent government. Um, Across the entire media last week, I was genuinely amazed at these glowing eulogies that Michael Gove seemed to receive from all comers when he announced his departure from front bench politics. Is this just a case of journalists wanting to cover for one of their own? And has this prevented the degree of scrutiny that we should have seen? Maybe they all want jobs on the Times, if that's where you go. <laughs> um, look, I, I, I take a, a slightly different view. Um, I think Michael Gove, uh, he has his flaws, uh, but he is fundamentally a decent sort of person. He is decent in the sense that he works hard, he tries to master his brief in, in government, and he tried to do the right thing as he sees it. Now, that right thing at times involves stabbing Boris Johnson in the back, and I wasn't personally particularly offended by that. I w- if he does go to the... I think he will make a really good editor at the Times. I don't want a job, by the way. Um, uh, so I'm not really surprised because unlike Boris Johnson, who made a career out of telling, telling absolute nonsense in the pages of The Telegraph, total crap, uh, Gove tr- at least tries to get the facts right, it seems to me. Uh, I disagree with him on many things, but I I don't think he's quite the appalling human being that some people think. Uh, You know what? I'm going to stick up for him here and and I will vouch for him, even though I disagree with with everything he he does and stands for. But he is my MP. And because I'm a parish councillor, I I do have to um, uh, to have some dealings with him. And I must say he has always been unfailingly polite and is always very professional and um, and is competent. I don't, I don't yes. agree with what he does, but, but he is competent and he takes public service very seriously, and which, you know, Boris Johnson never, never did. Um, so I will give him uh, credit for that. That's uh, the Times' new baking con- uh, correspondent there, Emma Kennedy. Conquer <laughs> <laughs> correspondent. <laughs> um, yes, if Michael Gove, if you ever need anything written about conquers, uh, I'm your woman. Arthur, Gavin mentioned there the presence of Robbie Gibb at the BBC. Um, Is that how you change institutions fundamentally in Britain now, by placing people of your choosing in the top jobs? 
Well, I think it, you can look at um, democracies that are running into difficulty, and one of the features of it is a sort of ultra-partisan approach to public appointments. Uh, and of course, um, where America's Republicans lead, so the Tories follow, and, and there they, they, they've moved to extremes. You know, the, the Trump administration appointed people who are flagrantly unqualified, but you know, their qualification was loyalty to Donald Trump. Uh, and I think certainly since the Brexit um, takeover, you've seen more of that in Britain, where your your ideological fealty is uh, is one of the main qualifications for appointment. Now, we're, you know, we shouldn't overdo this. Tony Blair was not particularly known for appointing Tories to jobs. But certainly, you'll see this sort of uh, slip further down the, um, you know, for, for further down the rankings. So for example, I know that for you know, there's been this whole culture war approach to appointments to all kinds of fairly low public uh, roles, you know, uh, people on the boards of museums and stuff like that. And of course, uh, you've got uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg saying that people who don't agree with the government's policy shouldn't be allowed to speak to civil servants, as if civil servants are these sort of simpletons who are incapable of grappling with different viewpoints. Um, so, so I think that that is a sign, as I say, of a um, of a democracy um, uh, slowly collapsing. The proposed privatisation of Channel 4 has been kicked around for the past few years and very much seemed like Nadine Doris's pet project. Um, will it happen now, do you think? I don't think it'll happen simply because although uh, Nadine Doris, uh, you know, due to her slavish loyalty, I'm sure uh, will be will continue in the cabinet. Uh, the uh, there's going to be the, the next government will have a lot on its plate, and it just feels like something that that will take quite a lot of time. And, and clearly, it, it's of no has no value at all other than this sort of strange little partisan uh, culture project for for a for a tiny little corner of the sort of wider Tory movement. So I think I think it's unlikely. Gavin, on the flip side, despite all that, it hasn't been an all bad year for journalism, has it? We had the Mirror largely bringing down Johnson, general outrage at the Channel 4 decision and new stations launching, even if we don't always agree with them, it's arguably more choice is a good thing. Uh, do you at least have some optimism for your old trade? Yeah, I do, actually. I, I, I think it is it is the good, the bad and the ugly. And we, we concentrate a lot on the bad and the ugly. But the, the good is great. I mean, we're on something which didn't exist a few years ago. Uh, Byline Times, the new European, have got audiences. I think part of it, however, is because there is so much choice, uh, we are deluged by stuff. And to go back to Emma's point, it can play into the idea that they're all the same, the politicians are all the same, and they're not all the same. And they're decent people in all, all the political parties. There just aren't very many at the top of the government. And it, it, I think more choice tends to, unfortunately, uh, dilute trust in some of our institutions. And I think that that is a pity. Finally, this week sees parents nationwide breathe a sigh of relief, public transport become tolerable again, and COVID preparing to remind us all of its existence as the summer holidays end and kids return to school. So what do we remember about our own first days at school? And what would our panellists change about education if they were in charge? Uh, Emma, what, uh, what, what do you remember about your first day at the big school? Oh, dear. Buckle up, everybody. So my first day at school, I have one very vivid memory of it, is of sitting on the toilet, having done a poo, and crying my eyes out because I didn't know how to use uh, the toilet paper dispenser, and my poor teacher having to come in and wipe my bottom. That was my first day at school. 
Right, I was, that's... I, that was I was thirteen, of course. <laughs> yeah, I can't, can't improve on that. <laughs> this is a thread we maybe don't want to start pulling out here on this discussion. Um, Gavin, how was it for you? Less Freudian and traumatic, I hope. It was. It was a, definitely a lot better than it was for Emma. My first teacher was called Miss Darling, and she was absolutely wonderful. And I got to sit next to, and I remember her name, although I haven't seen her for a very long time, Linda McIntosh, who was also lovely. So I had a very, very nice first day at school. What an idyllic start to uh, start to life there. Um, Arthur, you went to a slightly different kind of school to uh, me and I suspect the rest of the panel. What do you remember of your early educational days? Well, my very first school, I, I would be really honest, I can't remember very much at all. And, and I, I'm sure, you know, the poo incidents have been blanked out. But I, it wasn't long before I was a, a choir boy in a sort of cathedral school, um, an angelic choir boy can you believe it um and i remember of those days the a- absolute terror in the early days because you had to get through a hell of a lot of music and it's that classic sink or swim thing where uh, as as an eight-year-old you're trying to sort of sight read complicated bits of mozart and stuff um and of course it sounds very old-fashioned to say it now but being thrown in at the deep end you know makes you a man or something like that anyway there you go that's top tips for... I, i'm just i'm just stunned that uh, these voc- vocal talents have never been put to good well it, the, the, if you go through uh, bbc news um from must be sort of mid 80s that there, there, there is a moment uh, it must be there in the archive somewhere You've got children of your own now. How different is their back-to-school experience compared to yours, do you think? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, we're all terribly sensitive now, so there's no in at the deep end, and um, everyone posts pictures of the men in their uniform. What I obviously never realised as a kid was just what a what a nightmare being around for the whole of the school holidays was for the parents, and so I, I try to make my children understand that in, in sensitive and you know detailed manner. How about you, Gavin? What do you think's improved for children today? Ah, what what has improved? Um, I'm I'm not not sure actually. I think uh, certainly for state school children, things have got worse because they're less funded. You know, I mean, just compared to uh, twenty years ago, state schools have fewer facilities. There are real worries about class sizes. You know, about the cost of fuel and so on. So, I'm not sure what has what has got better. Um, Particularly the question of class sizes. I know quite a lot of teachers and how a teacher controls or teaches 32 people of mixed ability i don't know I, I i admire them greatly but i wouldn't i wouldn't do their job emma you've done pretty much every other job across the creative industries uh yes. to the present date uh so it's not completely impossible that you might get put in charge of schools in near future <laughs> If you're not too busy writing the Conkers column for the Times with your busy mate, Michael Gove, um, if PM Trust were to give you the call, what would be on your agenda to sort out Britain's schools? I think I would, would try and introduce non, non-degree non pathways to careers during schools um, and also pathways to careers if, if you do want to go down the university route. But it always struck me you're not prepared in a practical way uh, for the world that is going to come at you very, very fast when you leave school. So, like, take English literature, for instance. By all means, teach English literature. But wouldn't it be useful if you could all, instead of English literature, you could be taught journalism or script writing or how to write for radio for non-factual programmes? So you are leaving school with a practical understanding of a, a career pathway to which you can then proceed. And, you know, if you're not academic, why not? Why, why aren't we teaching kids car mechanics? Why aren't we teaching nursing in school? There's no joined up 
thinking between what is taught at school and then what you're going to have to do in the in the world beyond so that's what i would do i i would i would give teachers much more leeway in what they taught i would remove standardized standardized tests like they do in finland and i would make school be about a, a much more rich learning process but also giving people practical skills that they can use when they get out Arthur, you've lived all over the world in your past professional life. Um, what did you see from systems in other countries that you think we could adopt here? Well, I will start by saying that I've seen things that we should be glad we don't have. And, and uh, you know, against the vibe of the Bunker podcast, I'm going to say that there's some things we've got right. So although the summer holiday seems endless to parents, there are, there are plenty of countries in the world where it runs on for months um, so that's one thing. Um, there are plenty of schools in the world, I've in countries I've visited, where um, corporal punishment is still very normal. Uh, so I think we can be pretty happy we've got rid of that. Um, but I certainly agree with Emma about the exam stuff. I mean, we still, uh, there are lots of kids in this country, uh, including my 10-year-old boy, who will sit the 11 plus this term. Uh, or, you know, we, we may have got rid of uh, grammar schools mostly, but there are still parts of the country where they're still there. And if they're there, you, you, you'd be silly to ignore them. So, there, you know, you've, you've got, there, there are, that we have children who are very stressed, they're over-examined, and there's no particular evidence that it, it does them any good in the long term. And I, and I think uh, ability to understand um, how, how we can help young people sort of manage the stresses of the 21st century seems something that we haven't got very good. good yeah, at. We, we, we make it very easy in this country for children who underachieve early in life to be written off and mm. placed in yeah. lower sets, which, you know, in turn will discriminate against their chances and not everyone develops at the same rate. Um, and that that's a big thing I would change. Gavin, you're in charge of an educational institution for your day job. It's obviously very easy to criticise these places from the outside, as we just have done for 10 minutes. Um, what do you think we fail to appreciate about running these places? What don't the public understand? I, I suspect quite a lot. I mean, I think um, the University of Kent is in Canterbury. Uh, there's a hinterland of people who have not never considered that their children might go to university because of the reasons that Emma uh, and Arthur have said that, uh, that we sometimes fail children early. We f make them fail. And we don't think that university should be from, it's not for everybody, but there is an expectation in some communities that it's not for me. And one of the things that we try to do is get in children's authors because uh, children love books, uh, most of them, and their parents come to university where they've never been before. So I think we need to be better at that kind of outreach and saying it might be for you. Secondly, I think people don't understand how amazing students are. I mean, the student uh, the student politics in my day, my time at university was completely idiotic but student politics now maybe there's some bits that I don't know about but they seem to be pretty amazing and they also the number of times I've had conversations with students and I say what do you, what do you really want to get out of this and so many students say to me not I want to be rich or not I want to be world king or any of that stuff they say I want to do something that makes my parents or my friend or my girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever it is be proud of me. And that makes me extremely proud because I think I think there are opportunities for people who would never think of going to university and they might actually enjoy it. So all all those things I think are something are things that we need to communicate better.
And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What entertainments have given our panellists a break from the bruising world of politics over the last seven days? Gavin, how have you been getting away from it all? I've been getting away from it all by, I suppose, one of the things I've watched recently is Rogue Agent, which is a new film, uh, which has got uh, James Norton and Gemma Arterton in it. It's, it's, it really is quite involving. It is about true, based on a true story of a guy uh, called Robert Freegard who masqueraded, masqueraded as an MI5 agent, and he got people to do all sorts of things, including give him money. And I think that's quite a quite a good story for our times, actually. Uh, how to how to masquerade and get people to do things that uh, y- y- would surprise you, because we certainly have that in our public life as well. Arthur, how about you? Uh, well, uh, last night I, with my kids, I watched one of those um, Peter Sellers, Inspector Clouseau films, ah. which are you know incredibly stupid but uh, unbelievably funny. Although I have to admit, I think I found it funnier than uh, than my ten year old. So I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> And uh, Emma, what's been taking your mind away from politics this week? I am currently building a uh, 10-pin bowling alley out of Lego. Wow, to scale? Or? No, not to scale. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that, would, be, that, that would be sensational. Uh, but sadly not, no. <laughs> what's, uh, what's, been the, what's the most difficult part of that as a Lego building challenge? Uh, I'm trying to make a working mechanism. That, that takes the, um, uh, the the pins. That's going to be my my big challenge. Wow! Uh, I feel like we need a visual update. On yeah, this. If you can definitely. if you can send us one for the uh, the bunker for the bunker socials. Yeah, if if you could keep an eye on my um, uh, on my Lego account on on Twitter at Lego with, and I'll probably post some pictures uh, when I'm when I'm ready. That's a scale model of the Finsbury Park Mega Bowl coming up uh, anytime now. <laughs> so, uh, my own escape route has been. Uh, <laughs> I've just started reading uh, Exit Stage Left by Nick Durden, which is the excellent book about what happens to pop stars after pop careers end. It's uh, really sort of far more poignant than you expect, but a really brilliant study of what happens when maybe by the age of 23 or 24, you've done the biggest thing that you're ever going to do in your life and how you fill the time afterwards. That's fully recommended. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you to Gavin Esler. Thank you very much. Thank you to Arthur Snell. Thank you for having me. And thank you to our special guest, Emma Kennedy. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, please do consider supporting us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You'll be helping us pay hard-working journos and producers, and you'll get the benefits, including a shout-out on the podcast like these. Big thanks to Mike Curry, Robert Matchin, and David Worthington. And it's hello from me to Michael Hughes, Jez Stevenson, and Mary Ramey. And finally, many thanks and best wishes from me to Chris Dornan, Katrina Moore, and Andrew Myers. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Justin Quirk, with Arthur Snell, Gavin Esler, and Emma Kennedy. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Yelnas Ofrenievich, Jacob Archbold, and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>